Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey, Warrior, just a quick public service announcement on behalf of this show's sponsor, Chint Power Systems, also known as CPS America, as well as Extensible Energy. I'm super grateful for both as they help bring this show to you for free. If you're going to be at InterSolar this coming week in San Diego, please go visit them. You can find Chint at booth 1141. You can find Extensible Energy at booth 1627. In fact, if you'd like to set up a meeting with Extensible, you can go to extensibleenergy.com forward slash InterSolar. All right, now on to the show. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I am so honored, as always, that you're joining me for another fantastic foray into the world of solar energy. This week, we do have a doozy of an episode. Martin DeBono is president of GAF Energy, a company that is transforming the roofing industry by integrating solar into every roof. But how he got to his current role is fascinating. So much so, I ended up having two sessions with Martin just to get the entire story. Martin's tech background at industry giants Cisco and Siebel gave him key skills in channel management, and that's what attracted SunPower to recruit him and has now translated to the growth of some of the most respected brands in the rooftop solar business. Indeed, his tenure at SunPower marks one of the most incredible growth periods of that company's history. If you love this episode, you should check out the more than 220 other founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com and sign up to receive a notification when the next episodes have dropped. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, here we are about to roll into February, the new year and the new decade are well underway. And I am excited for today's guest. I have a chance to hang out with uh, one of the guys that has been providing leadership at the highest levels of sort of renewables development for uh, the better part of the last decade and brings a lot of experience from different walks of life. We're going to explore that a bit. But first, let me introduce you. Martin DeBono is the president of GAF Energy. For those of you who are familiar with GAF, that name sounds familiar. Maybe you're thinking of GAF, the multi-billion dollar global roofing company. We'll talk about the ties there, but more importantly, we're going to look at what GAF is up to in the world today and how Martin and his team are taking on and helping transform not just solar, but the roofing industry with their products and innovative approaches. So Martin, thanks for joining us on Suncast. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I look forward to the conversation. Absolutely. Martin, uh, I think one of the things that uh, caught me at first glance when I looked at your background, and of course, I've, I've known uh, sort of who you are and your role in the industry from your days at SunPower, but I was not as familiar until I had a chance to look at your background, LinkedIn profile, et cetera. 
that you got your intro into alternative energy in a somewhat unorthodox way. Can you give us a, an intro to how you first got exposed to, to alternative energy? Well, for sure. Um, my first exposure to alternative energy was I was a submarine officer in the Navy. And now I think almost all submarines in the U.S. Navy are nuclear powered. I think when I was there, they had a few battery powered. So my first exposure to alternative energy was nuclear power and had the opportunity to spend hundreds of days underwater with uh, no other source other than the reactor for power. And through that experience, realized the pros and cons of nuclear energy. You had, uh, obviously, you were a decorated officer in the Navy. Uh, it's, uh, I think, for many of us to understand that you have that training and that formation from uh, armed services helps a bit to kind of get a glimpse into perhaps who, who you are as a person. But your career didn't start out in clean energy. And I'd love to hear a bit about coming out of the service, how you decided where you wanted to uh, sort of enter into the formal work market. And then where, what was the catalyst that sort of opened your eyes to the opportunity with clean energy? Getting into technology was really straightforward for me. I remember very clearly a B-School interview. The interviewer asked me, you know, why technology? At the time I said, and this is back in 1997, I said, it's just absolutely remarkable that you can pick up a device today and have a phone call with somebody anywhere in the world. And that's just phenomenal. At the time, I was thinking of satellite phones, which are mm -hmm. very, very rare and very, very hard to come by. But I thought that was absolutely remarkable in terms of shrinking distance and showing the potential power of technology. And so, and I, I truly believe that. Uh, remember, 1998, you know, this is before the uh, Netscape browser right. <laughs> for cell phones. And I just thought that that was the, that technology would certainly have an impact on the world. Had I realized exactly how much of an impact technology would have on the world, I would be uh, a far wealthier person than I am today. I clearly underestimated its impact. I'll never forget that. And then of course, coming out of B school held, to, held true to that and went to a software company so that I could get into technology. I was undergrad, I was uh, math and computer science. And so with my software background, with my leadership background for the Navy, I was able to get a job as a product manager for a software company uh, in 2000, right after the first uh, NAS, well, I guess the, last, the first NASDAQ collapse, if you will. And a hat tip to those of us from uh, or living in North Carolina. Martin is a UNC Chapel Hill grad. We've got a lot of listeners that also went to Chapel Hill. And obviously, uh, when you referred to B-School, had the uh, distinction of being able to go to HBS. Quite a lot of formal uh, education at the highest levels, not only in school, but also in the, uh, in the military and, or rather in the Navy, and then going into positions after B-School in, as you pointed out, in high tech from 2000 to, you know, for roughly the next decade, 2013 or so. How did you decide or uh, sort of how did your career uh, unfold that brought you into varying levels of, uh, of leadership, first uh, as a director at Oracle and Siebel, and then you know, ultimately as head of sales for Americas for Cisco? Yeah, I, I wish I could say I had a very well thought out plan. I, I really didn't. And I actually think I'm probably more of the rule than the exception. What I did know is once I started down the path of corporate America as a product manager, I realized that getting as close to the customer as possible was really interesting for me. And uh, selfishly, I remember working at, at Siebel and Oracle and saying, man, these sales guys are making a ton of money. <laughs> like, you know, how do I, how do I get, uh, 
how do I get some of that? So perhaps a little bit of greed motivated me, uh, candidly speaking, to get into sales. And it was it was the best thing I've ever done because especially in clean tech, sales does not have the um, the cachet or the attraction as it does is in um, companies like Oracle, Siebel, HP, et cetera. And so as I think about my career, I wanted to get in technology. And then I thought, hmm, you know, the people in technology that do well are salespeople, and that's a skill I didn't have. So I did that. And then after doing sales for a couple of years, I realized, well, you know what? I understand why salespeople get paid so much because it's a really difficult job. Uh, it's an exciting job. Uh, every quarter, your performance is numerically scored, and it's a high-stress job. And I realized, like, wow, I don't know. I don't know if this is for me long-term. And opportunity came along to uh, get into a, a different function, uh, specifically uh, opportunity to work at a company called Insightful, which is a public company, mm-hmm. and had the opportunity to be an executive at a public company, and that seemed really interesting and really would have rounded out my functional experience having had product management sales and now marketing. So um, the trajectory I took was not one that I really thought out. Uh, It was a little bit self-centered, but uh, as I look back now, I'm I'm glad I had the opportunity to get experience in the various functions as I really think that has helped me become the leader that I am today. Yeah. You mentioned that it's a very difficult skill set. Was there anything in particular that you were introduced to at Oracle that you feel like was foundational for you that you carried through to your time at Insightful and then, uh, and then in later roles from a sales perspective? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the expression, you're not paid to report the news, you're paid to make the news, which basically means that you're responsible and mm-hmm. you, have, um, you have a responsibility to deliver for the company. And regardless of what happens, you're responsible for that. And it really instilled in me an understanding that the, you know, the business world is ultra competitive and for businesses to be successful, they have to take responsibility for, for their customers and for their results. And uh, when you're on the front line in sales, it's crystal clear every, every week, every quarter, uh, every year. And so I, I take that um, uh, seriously even today, right? That if you're a salesperson, you've got a responsibility, you have to deliver. And similarly, if you're not a salesperson, you need to understand what sales is reporting back to the company because they are the tip of the sphere. They're in mm. constant contact with their customers. And uh, you can learn a tremendous amount about your products, your services, the future direction of industry by sitting down and having a coffee or having a drink with your sales team. Yeah, I find that there is often a chasm between the support services, the uh, even the marketing team, ironically, and uh, biz dev and sales. Um, and it's encouraging to hear you say, uh, that the team, the, the folks really should be checking in with sales. They're the tip of the spear. And, and it's, it's often a lone wolf and a lonely job in sales. And, and you managed, uh, you know, large swaths of, we'll call it territory and business for major companies like Oracle and Cisco. Uh, it seems like at the time you had a dream career head of sales at Cisco, but something, something, uh, was, something was amiss there uh, that led you to ultimately the next pivot or transition in your career. How did you first get exposed to uh, the idea that the solar industry was finally maturing and you were ready to take a step in that direction? Yeah, for sure. Well, certainly one correction. I wasn't the head of sales for Cisco. I was the head of sales for one of Cisco's divisions. Um, that's a, just a, a big difference, but it was still oh, sure. a fairly <laughs> sizable responsibility that I had. So uh, what happened was um, Cisco is a fantastic company, a very well-run company. And I would encourage anybody, if they're in their career and they have the opportunity to do a stint in sales, do it at Oracle or Cisco because you will learn so much that you can put to use uh, anywhere else in your career. Effectively, what happened was I kind of burned out on selling routers and network equipment. It just wasn't doing it for me. I was in my late 30s and I thought there's got to be more to life than 
you know, hawking various wares, you know, small business switches, Linksys routers. And it literally, I, at that time in my life, I thought I want to do something different. And so uh, I left Cisco and was going to take a, a trip around the world. And I, I was super excited about that. However, like a month and a half in, I had a really bad mountain bike accident and ended up in the hospital, uh, broke uh, two vertebrae, broke both collarbones and was thinking, wow, this is really bad luck because, you know, here I have this year off, I'm in relatively good shape, but uh, I'm now laid up in bed Mm -hmm. and always better to be lucky than smart. A recruiter called me and said, Hey, there's this company SunPower that is interested in speaking to me. And I'll never forget this conversation with the recruiter effectively went like this. I said, I have no solar experience. And it has been at this point, you know, 10 years since I last stepped foot on a power plant. Mm-hmm. And the recruiter said, Hey, if a solar company is recruiting someone like you for solar expertise, then that company's in trouble. Meaning they had all the solar expertise in the world, but they were looking for someone who had more channel expertise, more sales expertise than go to market expertise that would help extend the reach of solar beyond the early adopters. And so that was very exciting. Also, I'll never forget this. In 2008, there was a, the, I think the cover of Scientific American. And if you think back, 2008 is now 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I Googled it before we got on the podcast. The cover of Scientific American basically said, you know, uh, a roadmap for powering the United States by solar. And I remember reading that article and thinking, man, if, if we had just invested in solar instead of all the you know, the 800 or whatever billion dollars invested in the, in the bailouts following the 2008 crash, the electronic infrastructure of the country would be very, very different. And so the combination of understanding the potential of solar, potential of alternative energy, and being able to bring my skills and go to market to bear to a new problem is what led me to alternative energy. But even, even when I got the offer, I was like, is this for real? Like, really? You know, solar power, people are going to, this is going to be a big industry. And uh, I did some cursory research. And when I found out that in many markets, even without incentives or in some markets, I should say more specifically, in some markets without incentives, solar made sense. Like for example, in Hawaii, I was like, I'm in. And that was in 2013. And uh, since then I've been absolutely hooked on solar. It's uh, it's fantastic. I, I, I love it as do many of the other people who are in the industry. I know that you spent a number of years helping, uh, you know, one of the market leaders, uh, as I discussed in the lead in Sun Power, and talked about how you got sort of introduced to the solar industry what were the fundamental changes that you saw in the marketplace and how you adapted the, the learning from your previous uh, roles into pivoting uh, or growing that business for SunPower? Yeah, uh, certainly. Um, well, I don't want to talk anything specifically about SunPower. Uh, I have been in the channel business for most of my career after I left the Navy. And so rather talk about some principles of running a good channel business that hold, whether it's uh, being a software developer like Siebel or Oracle that goes to market through um, as a channel, uh, uh, Cisco, which is a hardware company, which definitely goes to market through a channel or, you know, any roofing, uh, windows or solar. Uh, so there's some principles about channel management and what channel partners expect that I think are, are really important. And um, they may sound obvious, but it's remarkable when you get bogged down in the day to day, people forget about these principles. First and foremost, when you go to market through a channel partner, uh, or through a channel, excuse me, you, tr- you have a true partnership. You're relying on your partners in the channel to provide you customers. In return, those partners are hoping that you will be a reliable business partner. And it sounds very straightforward, but whenever you're in a channel business, there's always this tension between, hey, where are the profits split? 
and where are the resources deployed? So what I would say uh, key to any channel business, whether it's in solar or hardware, is being a reliable business partner. And I think there's three things that always stand out regardless of whichever product you're selling through a channel. The first is you have to have reliable lead times. People need to know when they can order your product, when it will be delivered, and to plan their expectations for their customers. After you have reliable lead times, you need to have reliable delivery. I remember at Cisco, uh, Cisco, uh, one of their channel partners is Walmart. And Walmart says you have to deliver within a 30-minute window. And if you don't hit that 30-minute window, there's actually penalties to face. And that's super important because Walmart, in order to drive down low prices for their customers, has to uh, maintain very tight turns. And tight turns require shipping inventory within the nearest 30 minutes. Now, that's not necessarily most home improvement industries, but shipping on time is critical. And then finally, having financing available. Channel partners take your inventory and there's got to be a way for them to finance it, whether it's with flooring programs that are available through banks or vendor financing. Having finance programs for your channel are critical. And so by applying those principles, any channel business can be successful. But what happens is, again, in the tension that happens across the channel value chain, people are always like fighting for that last nickel. And they lose sight of the fact that unless you know, the, the manufacturer and the uh, value-added reseller work together, you're not actually going to effectively serve that customer. And so whether it was at uh, SunPower or Cisco or Siebel, really reminding people that we have to work with channel partners and we have to make sure that we have valuable, or sorry, accurate lead times, we deliver on time, and then appropriate financing programs. Uh, that's what's required to be a successful channel partner and to actually operate a channel effectively. Martin, as I hear you explain the DecoTech product, and I'm doing some research on it, and, and uh, you know, just uh, I, like many in the field, I'm, I'm sure, are going, gosh, I wish something like this existed 15 years ago, 10 years ago when I was uh, selling product in the marketplace. You know, something that didn't exist that I'm sure is uh, some wind in your sails is the California new build requirement. Would you comment a bit on how that legislation and perhaps other legislation uh, that you see in the marketplace impacts the decisions that you guys make around product you bring to market and then how you integrate that into your channel strategy? So the requirement is that any new home or any single family new home, be more specific, will have to have at least like a 2KW system, a 2KW solar system. And so that is a requirement that now has all many new home builders uh, struggling to figure out how they're going to fulfill it. And so from our perspective, when anything's required by law, it certainly makes for an interesting market because there is a guaranteed demand. But what might surprise you and your listeners, I'm not really keen on that market. And the reason is maybe it's my bias from my early Navy days. It's like, as soon as the government requires something, there tends to be a race to the bottom in terms of quality and, and service. And so every solar manufacturer under the sun has also seen the same legislation and they are just rushing to offer products basically at cost or below cost just to keep their factories loaded. And so while it's fantastic for the planet and it's fantastic for the reputation of solar, uh, I don't view it as a uh, source of profit because the competition is fierce and people are willing to use the new homes channel as a way to lower their overall cost structure by loading their factories, uh, as opposed to actually getting profits in and out from the, the new home channel. And the reason that happens is because in, when some things are getting required by law, you have a negotiation for a large amount of product done by a professional purchasing agent at a new home builder. 
with uh, multiple manufacturers, you know, RFPs are held. The uh, concept of service and quality typically take the back seat to price in these sorts of negotiations. And so perhaps in the future, we'll go after this market. My guess is right now, if you look at the people who are supplying product into the new homes market, they're doing it at or just slightly above cost. And so uh, it's not something that we are pursuing right now. Wow, that's really insightful. And uh, I had a question on the tip of my tongue <laughs> around the, the new build market generally, because it has historically been, it seems, uh, very difficult for home builders, the, the, the big three, five home builders in the U.S., to really go after integrating solar. It's very interesting, the idea. Now, I hadn't thought about it this way. The race to the bottom, it's, it's the same reason that many roofers and, and other companies don't go after these big RFPs for schools or municipalities because it doesn't allow a differentiation and a profit margin of 30 plus percent that many roofers love to enjoy, right? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the home builders are going to provide a quality product to their customers. And that's, you know, that's their job. They, they are, they're fantastic uh, in doing that. And the way they do that is they have professional purchasing agents that go and squeeze vendors for the lowest price. Uh, there's, um, you know, like, you know, think about what, when, if you go into Sam's Club or Costco, the reason that Sam's Club or Costco can offer such fantastic prices to their customers is that they aggregate the purchasing power of, of uh, buyers and their, their value proposition is we're going to give our customers the lowest prices. And so in order for that to happen, the you know, part and parcel of our conversation earlier where the, the splitting of profits across the value chain, uh, the, the vendors get squeezed. If you go into a new home construction, the stuff is good, meaning whether it's the, the washing machine or the thermostat, but the strategy employed by manufacturers are, hey, I will take this guaranteed demand just so I can fully load my factory and thereby lowering the overhead on the products I sell into other areas. Uh, and so uh, as a nascent, as a nascent organization, uh, we feel that it's much better for us to focus on the re-roofing market than the new homes market. That said, in the future, as we achieve scale uh, commensurate with other players in the industry, perhaps it's, a, it's, a, it's an area in which we uh, venture into. Uh, I would like to think that as our product evolves and because we're able to leverage GAF and our understanding of waterproofing, our understanding of roofing, we theoretically are positioned to build the best solar roof. And at that time, perhaps we will venture into this market. But for now, we're really going to focus specifically on homeowners that are getting a new roof. And in the context of getting that new roof, we want to offer them the best solar option that they can have at that time. So I'm actually really curious from a marketing perspective, how you are thinking about that, because there's a lot of different models right now. Uh, we've obviously touched on the channel partner relationship, which is allowing as a manufacturer the pull through from your channel partners, the, the roofers, to effectively market and sell this product. Are you also engaging a, a pull through model from GAF that allows you to feed business to your channel partners? Uh, for sure. There's a lot of, you know, GAF being the largest roofing company in the world and GAF Energy having a very unique value proposition. There is a lot of uh, interest in our offerings and uh, by, you know, through uh, inbound inquiries, whether it's through our call center, or our website, and then we're able to feed that back to our channel partners. And so they love that, right? As much as earlier we discussed the, the uh, acquisition cost and the roofing channel is really low, everyone loves even more customers. So given our, our presence uh, in, uh, in the forefront of people's minds when it comes to roofing, there's a lot of inbound inquiry that we then feed to our business partners to help them grow their businesses. 
Are you doing that with uh, kind of traditional internet marketing things like, uh, you know, Facebook advertising campaigns, LinkedIn campaigns, stuff like that? Or what are you seeing work? Well, uh, I'm a huge fan of Facebook campaigns just in general. It's, it's no surprise that company is so big. It's been one of the most effective platforms on which anybody can advertise. But uh, no, right now, it's just the fact that GAF is such a renowned company in the world of roofing and GF Energy being able to ride on the coattails of it, people are coming to us. And so uh, we're not running Facebook campaigns, but rather just employing traditional tactics to make sure that when people search for roofing or solar roofing, that uh, through natural search, GAF and GF Energy show up. And then through our own internal lead forms and landing pages, collect that information and distribute it back out to our customers. For sure, we experiment um, on uh, keywords and just to keep pulse on what other people are doing. But the, the most effective way for us is not surprising. Uh, the natural search inquiries that come to our website as a result of us being uh, the sister company to the largest roofing company in the world. When I was at Trina and Trina was becoming the, at the time they were number two. And while I was there, we became number one manufacturer in the world in terms of size, not, not unlike GAF for roofing in terms of market presence for a much smaller niche or vertical. We had a remarkably small marketing team with a big budget. I feel like a lot of folks listening probably haven't worked at a big manufacturer like GAF. How lean uh, is your marketing uh, organization and how do you think about building out that comms team and that, that marketing yeah, strategy? It's, 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 it's remarkable, remarkably lean. It's, it's very, we don't invest a lot in it, uh, sorry, in people. And I've always been a big fan of, hey, the, the, the ratio of programs to people has got to be something like 10 to 1, right? And you can't, uh, what happens is oftentimes when you're a growing company, the instinct is, hey, I have to hire a bunch of people in marketing. But if you hire a bunch of people in marketing and you don't give them the dollars to go and accurately spread their message, then you're actually doing everybody a disservice because you have a bunch of employees who can't execute their plans. Uh, you have a bunch of shareholders who are spending money and it's not really... Uh, hitting their reach. But yeah, like most manufacturers, uh, we let the reputation of our organization do carry the, a lot of the weight, i.e. we have a lot of inbound inquiries. And so we do have a small marketing team. And then as we have more resources available, we tend to put that into programs to amplify that as opposed to hiring more people. For those who maybe don't understand uh, marketing speak, I always I often like to just uh, disambiguate. Can you explain programs and how that what, what that means for you? Oh yeah, certainly. So uh, for us, it's there's the think about the the money you spend in marketing. You're going to spend it on those people uh, whom we're actually creating uh, ideas, and then the programs are the dollars you might spend buying advertising or uh, sponsoring conferences or um, doing consumer reach out. And so you want to make sure you have sufficient dollars allocated to uh, making sure your message is broadcast. Uh, as far and wide as possible, or maybe maybe that's wrong. Make sure your message is broadcast as targeted as possible uh, versus just spending on more and more people. Because if you spend all your marketing dollars on headcount and not programs, you'll have a lot of great ideas, but then you won't have the uh, ammunition to actually have those ideas reach their targeted audiences. And so, and then in manufacturers, just because you know many manufacturing companies have, you know, it's not like for example, when we previously we talked about Facebook or Google that have these massive margins. Uh, manufacturing companies with slim margins tend to have uh, much bigger program budgets than they do on headcount uh, so that their message can be broadcast as uh, specifically as possible uh, for the dollars that they've allocated to marketing. Get ready for comedy and fun coming in February at the inaugural Solar Comedy Slam to enter solar in San Diego. Produced by Chent Power Systems, a.k.a. CPS America, 
the Solar Comedy Slam will be the lit party to get 2020 started. Enjoy the shenanigans at this solar industry version of Last Comic Standing. Thanks to CPS America for bringing this fantastic idea to fruition. Whether you want to test your comedic metal or just get a good laugh at the expense of your industry colleagues, this will be a must-attend event at InterSolar. Get your tickets or your spot in the lineup at solarcomedyslam.com. Again, that's solarcomedyslam.com. Hey, commercial solar friends, you've probably heard that 2020 starts the solar plus decade. Well, that doesn't just mean solar plus storage. It means solar plus intelligent software like DemandX, extensible energies demand charge reduction software that inexpensively reduces demand and time of use charges by 30% without batteries or extra permitting. By including DemandX software in your proposals, you'll increase customer ROI, shorten payback times, and help close more commercial solar and storage deals. Contact Extensible Energy at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast for a free demand charge analysis for your commercial solar project and start closing more sales in the Solar Plus decade. Well, you've mentioned a few things here that really perk my ears uh, that you tend to be, it seems, a, a bit of a contrarian, both with the, the way that you're going to market, the way that you think about building your marketing team, uh, and your comment around uh, the California mandate market. What else do you believe to be true that few others would agree with you on? Oh, well, that's, uh, this is where I, I get in trouble. But I'm not the biggest fan of battery storage today for a number of reasons. And that certainly rubs many of my colleagues and even my coworkers in uh, renewables the wrong way. I think that's probably, that's one. Would you care to extrapolate a bit on or expound on that? There's a few things that I'm thinking about when I think about batteries. Uh, also, just as, as a way of background, on a submarine, we have a really big battery. <laughs> and uh, yeah. in addition to nuclear power, nuclear generator is a big battery. So I have a little bit of technical experience here. But first and foremost, the, the, one of the things that drives me into solar is it really is the best way to generate electricity for a growing planet. Uh, this statistic is repeated over and over again. The, energy from the, the amount of energy from the sun that hits the earth in a minute or an hour is equivalent to the output of all the world's power plants in a year. And by converting solar energy into electrical energy uh, via a photovoltaic cell, you're doing that in a very, very efficient way uh, with respect to impact on the Earth's resources. When you take a lithium-ion battery, on the other hand, I do not believe a lithium-ion battery is environmentally responsible, and it's very unlikely that it's not uh, humanly responsible. And that is because there's a lot of cobalt and other um, uh, metals in lithium-ion batteries, and I'd encourage people to Google how cobalt is actually mined. And typically what you'll find is cobalt is mined by by people who are not of age. And I think a lot of uh, environmentalists in their uh, fury against uh, the impact of fossil fuels uh, easily overlook that fact. Uh, similarly, when you think about how lithium is actually uh, generated, it is, you know, it's, it's basically a big salt bath. And so I, I have issues on the environmental impacts of lithium ion batteries. And I wish, I think people need to be more thoughtful uh, because if we were more critical of lithium ion, that would help usher in a new generation of technologies 
that are far more uh, environmentally friendly uh, and uh, have the potential to have even lower costs that can truly help us wean ourselves from fossil fuels. For example, there are a new class of uh, zinc uh, batteries that have greater potential. There are some uh, liquid batteries that have greater potential. So I would encourage people um, who are truly doing this for environmental reasons to look, with, look at lithium ion and all that is necessary to get a lithium ion battery to work. Then, of course, there are the economics. If you look at the economics for battery storage and how much you need to invest versus the payback period for that, it is for the majority of people not uh, an economic investment at this time. You'd rather, uh, you're going to buy a lithium battery more based on the fact that you don't want to be inconvenienced when the um, power goes out as opposed to any return you'll receive on it. Uh, and then, of course, if you can, because I, I'm suspect of how lithium actually impacts the environment and certainly the people who mine the cobalt and the other, they're not heavy metals, but the rare metals that go into battery control systems, then you should ask yourself, like, what's, what's worse for the environment? And this is where people will really uh, be upset with me. But if you look at the environmental impact, I, I would challenge somebody who is only looking to be inconvenienced during a blackout. Is a gasoline generator any worse for the environment than a lithium-ion battery? Uh, similarly, we haven't really figured out what we're going to do with all these lithium-ion batteries when it's time to recycle them. Unlike uh, PV panels, where there is a cradle-to-grave plan for most photovoltaics, I don't know if the same exists for lithium-ion batteries. So I think that we need to, to cast a very critical eye on storage and usher in new types of storage that legitimately can help wean ourselves off of fossil fuels for both environmental and human rights purposes, social purposes. I don't know if I've ever had a guest in one answer touch on as many follow-on interviews as I have teed up. <laughs> it's remarkable. I mean, just next next week's episode uh, following yours is with Teague Egan of Energy X, who's looking at new ways to mine lithium. We've done a bunch of episodes on lithium iron phosphate, which is a non-cobalt solution. Um, and I tend, I tend to agree with you that, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of momentum, a sort of inertia right now around, uh, around mobile storage, right? Which is traditionally, which is effectively uh, electric vehicles. There's very few other applications as, as explosive, uh, not, to, not to pardon the pun, but <laughs> as explosive a market. But, um, but yeah, the, I mean, stationary energy storage is a totally different game. And, um, and we're trying to do a lot of mobile storage applications for stationary energy storage today. Well, I, wanna get, I don't want to get stuck and go down too deep a rabbit hole. I can tell that you are the kind of person who, who, who thinks deeply on these topics. Um, at a higher level, I'm really curious to tap into how this sort of second phase of your career coming into solar from uh, another technology field excites you from a leadership perspective and generally the 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 ethos of solar uh, i remember before you know in our in one of our conversations you said that joining solar is a passion and non-economic decision could, could you expound on the, de <laughs> yeah. the detail that you see in our industry compared with others yeah for sure for sure so uh, look I, I i'm very blessed and fortunate i have a great team uh, i love to be part of a team and it's this uh, as i enter the you know, the, the late evening of my career, uh, it, it's a fantastic way to spend with other like-minded individuals. There's a, there's a term, so I'm a big mountain biker, and there's a term for people who work in the mountain bike industry, they call it a passion career, and they know they're going to accept lower uh, compensation because every day they get to either you know, work for a mountain bike company, which entails, hey, your, your work is going out on lunch and testing a, a mountain bike product or going to a mountain bike festival. 
Uh, the same thing with people who work for uh, camping equipment companies or other uh, sporting rate companies. They tend to uh, be remunerated at a lower rate for the same function than other industries, but it's because they get the opportunity to do something they love. Uh, I also feel the same thing is true in, in renewables. Uh, if I look at the people on my leadership team, they could easily go to work for Google or Microsoft or Oracle or Facebook and make considerably more money, but they are making this trade-off between doing something they love versus getting a paycheck. And it's not to say that you can't make good money in, uh, in renewables, but you know, given the amount of effort put in, given the uh, amount of value delivered, uh, you typically will get compensated at a lower rate than if you were working in some other industry that might be uh, perhaps l less inspiring. And, uh, and as a result, uh, you end up working with people who are really passionate about what they do. Um, I would draw, and it's, it's a very parallel to being on a submarine. A, a submarine is one of the a few places in the Navy where it's truly all volunteers. While we definitely have a volunteer uh, uh, armed forces, but at any point, if you're on a submarine, you can raise your hand and say, hey, I'm done with being on a submarine, and you can go work on a surface ship or do something else. Uh, you have people who are committed to the cause. Similarly, in solar, you have people who are really committed, and there is having worked for networking companies, having worked for enterprise software companies, it's way different. In renewables, people have more energy, have much higher commitment than what I have seen in networking companies, in enterprise software companies, and in consumer product companies in general. What are the problems that still abound that we haven't solved in the energy business writ large that have been solved perhaps in other sectors like healthcare, or et cetera? I guess this is, not, this is a 30,000 foot question, but I'm, I figure maybe you've had some, had some time to think about this. Yeah, so I think that uh, what today energy has largely been um, viewed as a, well, energy has largely been pro provided by monopolies. And so there's not been a lot of consumer choice in the matter. And so I think the energy business has to figure out now in, in a world with various choices of energy, how you speak to consumers about it. Uh, and I think that's the biggest problem we face. I think financing has largely been solved by taking uh, constructs from other industries and applying them to uh, energy. But just how you talk about energy as a choice, uh, how you move an entire, and it's not just in the United States, but pretty much most of the world, energy is typically provided by uh, a local utility that has a monopoly and therefore not a lot has been ever been discussed about that. So I think for us, the biggest challenge uh, in the energy industry is going to be explaining to consumers the choice they have and, and the ramifications of the choices that they make with respect to their energy consumption. Yeah, I'm gonna have to think about that. What are the what are the markets or the the large verticals where consumer choice is prevalent? The knowledge workers who can easily transfer those skills to energy, because that's where uh, our recruiter friends, that's even where our executives are going to want to think about poaching good talent, like you were poached from uh, enterprise software. Yeah, I think one thing. Then this is not the most dynamic market, but hopefully it's becoming more dynamic. Uh, should they allow the, uh, the the Sprint merger to take place? Right. Uh, the uh, Mobile phones, right? It was a monopoly, and now Verizon and AT&T competing for a lot of people's attention there. You know, and granted, it's been going on now for almost 15, 16 years. I think that there's, but it has pretty much been a duopoly, Verizon or AT&T. I think that if the uh, uh, Sprint T-Mobile merger comes, and you actually have three well-capitalized companies, I think that you're going to see a lot more creativity in how you can attract customers uh, on um, mobile mobile data plans and mobile phone plans. And I think that that is a you know, I'd love to talk with people who have figured out, you know, how do I get someone to switch from local utility, monopolistic utility uh, for electricity to some other source? So I think that probably would be a good uh, proven ground on the consumer side. 
that's just the first thing that comes to mind. I'm sure that there's um, indeed. Yeah, we just had an episode that came out from our our podcast lounge ep- uh, series at Solar Power International with um with some folks talking about community solar. David uh, from SunShare was on it as example, and it occurs to me, you know, I've got a buddy in California who for the last 15 years has run essentially like all the little the, the Verizon stores and then the B2B business for Verizon. That kind of a salesperson is going to really flourish in an environment where energy choice is disaggregated and, um, and you need to be able to convert that user from one mindset to another, right? From, from I'm, I'm good with T-Mobile to why I should come back to Verizon. That's a really good analog. Yeah, I know. Every time, every time I go into a mobile phone store, uh, and I mean, it's not that often, but I like, you know, I like technology, I like gadgets. If someone's a really good salesperson on the floor, I always give them my card and say, hey, if you ever want to get into selling solar, please give me a call. I love it. That's a great recruiting strategy. <laughs> they're really good because, you know, they deal with a lot of people. They don't have a lot of time. And uh, they're you know, the ones that are really personable and can explain why I should. Because what's amazing about these contracts that they're selling is it's like, oh, it's only a hundred bucks a month, but well, which is quite a bit of money. But then all of a sudden you think about it, the average tenure is three, four, five years. That hundred bucks a month is that they're selling a six, $7,000 product and uh, they do it quite well and, and unassumingly. And before you know it, people are, are switching over. So uh, that's the type of skill set I think that would uh, behoove. Uh, at a very tactical level, but on a more strategic level, you know, what are the programs you run to educate a populace that, hey, you have a choice when it comes to energy. The average consumer spends something like nine minutes thinking about their electric bill in a given year, like nine minutes a year, which means they don't think about it at all. How do you break that mindset and let people know that solar is a viable choice, not just in California uh, and New York, but it's a viable choice in Florida and Pennsylvania and Illinois and uh, all these other geographies that heretofore were not um, did not really were not really viable for solar because the costs are coming down and with new ways of uh, putting solar on a rooftop, specifically roof integrated solar, um, and in the context of a roofing purchase, it's a decision that people have to make. So I think that that's a big problem that we have to solve. And, but I'm also very fortunate that I have a very good team thinking about solving that problem. So uh, I think we'll figure it out. Yeah, and the good and the good news as well is you, you know you guys are effectively uh, able to you have the luxury you've got a, a great balance sheet a great team and can do that sort of think tank stuff uh, on the, on the vehicle, on the platform of a do tank, right? Again, actually getting, getting things out to market. You, you mentioned that we have a great balance. I think the other thing that will happen that will help make this problem uh, that will solve this problem is like the energy companies are not dumb. Like the, the totals, the mobiles, the shell, the BPs, they are not dumb. They're very, very highly, uh, they're very well run companies. They're very smart people at those companies. And many of them see the future in renewables. And, you know, what I would be surprised if many of the leading solar players end up being acquired by the, uh, the majors. Uh, and, and what you're going to see there is just, you know, because solar is going to become so big, like these companies who have been traditionally fossil fuel companies, by acquiring solar companies are now going to become energy companies. And uh, they therefore will have the balance sheet and the capital to help everybody solve this problem. So... Um, what, whereas today, you know, you have a number of independent solar companies that are fairly poorly capitalized, that are uh, struggling to generate cash, certainly struggling to turn a profit. Uh, but just given the inevitable trajectory of the triumph of renewable energy over uh, fossil fuel energy, it's going to force those who are in fossil fuels to make investments. And then just the momentum of growth in renewables will make these companies that have been traditionally fossil fuel companies 
renewable companies and that will provide the capital to solve some of these challenges. Yeah, I think we're actually, uh, we're already seeing that, right, with LightSource and uh, Shell has been scooping up so many of the people that I respect uh, at an intellectual, like just really smart development and market understanding level are are going to these big oil and gas companies and helping them work from the inside out, right the ship, as it were. Well, Martin, you've had a lot of, uh, I, I know that we could go uh, into so many different tangents um, and, and different areas to explore and extract some of the wisdom that you've gleaned over the years. I would love to know on the other end of the spectrum, the ways that mentors have influenced your life and career. What are some of the key lessons or takeaways that impacted the the trajectory that you took and then how do you turn that towards mentorship of others? I have been lucky to have worked with, for some really great people uh, throughout the course uh, of my career and they've really uh, helped me quite a bit. You know, I think that early on in my career, I, I worked for a guy named Todd Kazaya. I don't think anyone's ever heard of Todd. He was a lieutenant commander in the uh, Navy and he instilled in me, like, anytime you sign something, like, that's your name, right? That, that's, that's what represents you. And in the Navy, you sign a lot of things. And he said to me, he's like, you're going to put your name on something, do it well. Uh, and I thank him for that. I think he's actually now a teacher in North Carolina. And then the other uh, gentleman is a, a, like an OG of solar, uh, Howard Wenger. Uh, Howard is just one of the nicest uh, human beings you'll ever meet. And if you ever want to get a deal closed, uh, you need to learn from Howard. He's got a phenomenal uh, energy and positivity. In fact, his calling card, he's always says relentless positivity. I had the opportunity to work with Howard for almost five years. You know, they instilled in me, like, it, it's, there really is, you can't just say it's business because business is, you know, unless it's being transacted by machines, is about human relationships. And at the end of it all, you need to be, a, well, you need to sleep with yourself. So if you can sleep with yourself and be what decided to be a bad person, well, that's good for you. I can't do that. And so, um, you know, what, what those two people taught me is, hey, if you're going to put your, like, as I said, I'm being repetitive. If you're going to do something, do it well. And then with Howard, just be, be positive and make sure that you don't take the human element out of what it is that you're doing. And so I've been fortunate to have uh, people such as that in my life. Uh, as for how I, how I mentor, I, I don't know if I'm a, a good mentor or a bad mentor. I really, for me, the most important group of, um, I would say, like a mentor has a protege uh, for me are, is my team at GAF Energy. And so, uh, there, I, I feel that my uh, philosophy is, uh, you know, I would never ask any of them to do anything I've never done or would be willing to do and try to lead by example. So um, I don't know if I have a, a specific, you know, I'm with my business school, I'm a model, I'm sure I sign up students, but for me, the most important people that I can teach and train are, are the folks on my team. And again, I, I hopefully do that by leading by example and not asking them to do anything I wouldn't do myself. Yeah, that's such an important and um, and uh, sort of elevating skill uh, as a leader on the team and to, to set that example. Uh, we've talked about uh, a number of ways that your career has progressed. Can you think back to a specific moment in time where you might can attribute a, an activity or an action or a decision you made as, an ex, as a success marker, one of those turning points in your career that you could say, oh, that's one of those areas where I was faced with a decision and it changed the rest of how I've, you know, what I've been blessed to do. One that stands out was I was at the startup called Pure Networks. And uh, we were like, we started 10 people, raised $10 million. And we are, we were, I was selling to networking companies. And we had lost a deal to Cisco. Yet I stayed in touch with Cisco through thick and thin. Ultimately, 
got back in touch uh, with the right people at Cisco, the deal we lost, we ended up reversing and winning, and we forged a great partnership with Cisco. Uh, Cisco ultimately acquired uh, our company by being part of an executive team that was acquired by a company like Cisco that absolutely allowed me to jump several levels and get a more senior position at Cisco than I would have had otherwise given my uh, experience. So uh, that falls in the category, partially always better to be uh, lucky than good, but uh, the correlate to that is you can make your own luck through effort. And I, I would certainly work my tail off to get that Cisco uh, deal done, but it certainly was lucky that deal happened. That deal happened on August 8th, 2008. And for those of you who uh, remember that date, like I think on like August 15th, 2008 is when the markets totally crashed. That certainly helped me. That kind of, if you were to think about things that accelerated my career, uh, that certainly helped me. But then after that, it's just having the good fortune to work with uh, people on teams and build good teams because it's such a trite saying, but <laughs> teamwork is really everything. Even, you know, it, it, people lose sight of that fact. And if you, if you can't lead a team or be a, a member of a good team, you're not going to get nearly as much done as you otherwise could. And so uh, from then on that, from then on out, it's been being part of good teams, both as a participant and a leader that has enabled me to get to where I uh, am today, which is, I'm, you know, I'm really fortunate, right? I, you know, leading a company in the renewable energy space, like, uh, I, I don't know if I could have predicted that when Cisco acquired Pure Networks uh, now uh, almost uh, 11 and a half years ago, but uh, it wouldn't have, I would not be in this position today if that transaction did not occur. And uh, so, yeah, to answer your question, if there was one thing, it was getting a really big deal done. And that big deal only got done because of being relentless and uh, pursuing uh, an opportunity that you recognize, right? Cisco's, you know, if you're in networking space, striking a partnership with a company like Cisco is, is a big deal. I think I detect uh, a, a reader in you. I believe that readers are leaders and vice versa. Do you have any particular books that have particularly impacted the way that you uh, lead, the way that you think about business and or, and or books that you recommend and gift the most? 100%, 100%. Uh, there's two books, and I think everybody in business should read them. Uh, they're really easy reads. Uh, in fact, I think I have a copy. Yeah, there it is. Uh, it is um, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team and Death by Meeting. Functions of a Team is uh, a book about what precludes teams from achieving their, mo their, their, their most. And it starts with lack of trust. Uh, and then I'd encourage your readers to read it. But if you can establish trust, then you can have conflict. And healthy conflict allows people to get to decisions faster. And that leads to results. So the five dysfunctions of a team are is a great book. And the thing about the five dysfunctions of a team is you can read it in a weekend. And it's a really good read. He also wrote Death by Meeting. So uh, for those people that know me, I hate spending times in meetings. Uh, I had a sign on my desk that used to say, none of us is as dumb as all of us. And that was an indictment of meetings. And typically what happens if you don't have a culture of trust and conflict, when you put five people in a room for a meeting, you end up coming out of there executing on a, instead of the greatest common factor, the least common denominator plan. And that is just the, the road to hell for companies because if you look at how much time people spend in meetings, that is time they're actually not producing valuable work. And so Death by Meeting is a great book that really talks to how you should orchestrate a meeting, when a meeting is necessary. And again, just given the preponderance of meetings in today's corporate culture, 
you, you have to be very efficient in those meetings. So uh, death by meeting and by dysfunction are uh, far and away the books. In fact, um, I used to buy copies of that book, and I think I still do. Uh, and I, 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 uh, when I say I think I still do, I should know the answer to that question. But anybody who joins my team now, I encourage them, hey, go buy Five Dysfunctions of a Team and Expensive. It's, uh, it's a great book. Absolutely great book. Yeah, Patrick Lencioni has been mentioned a bunch of times on this show, and it's clear that his, uh, his, his books on leadership have been seminal in helping folks build more efficient teams focused on the right things. So I appreciate you bringing that into focus here. I want to be sensitive to uh, the time uh, that you've given us. You've given us a lot to chew on, a lot to think about. How can folks who want to know more about GAF Energy or reach out to you directly, how can they best find you? Yeah, certainly. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way to find me, Martin DeBono at LinkedIn. I think the only other Martin DeBono is a member of parliament in the uh, country of Malta. So <laughs> distinguished. And then to find out about GAF Energy, we're hiring. We have uh, plans to uh, almost, well, plans to add a lot of people this year, probably close to double our headcount this year. Uh, so GAF.energy. And uh, on the GAF.energy website, we have uh, information about our leadership team, uh, information about the jobs that we have open, and information on the problem we are looking to solve. So I really do appreciate the time and opportunity to talk about renewable energy with you, Nico. It's, it's really, uh, really good for me. And uh, yeah, certainly appreciate the, the invitation. Well, let's end today with a bold prediction. I expect that you likely have one or more. What one thing do you, Martin DeBono, see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Yeah, I, I think that um, unfortunately I don't have any like, wow, I can't believe he said that moment or wow, he uh, predicted that. I, I the, the, the close to outcomer is there's a lot of people who feel like the future of Renewables is like in, in power plants and in um, large scale development and don't feel that distributed generation is the future. And uh, I, I could not disagree more with that. Uh, the future of energy is in locally produced and deployed energy, not in having five square mile solar power plants and then having it transmitted and distributed to locals. Uh, so that's probably... You know, if there's a debate going on, people always say, well, why would you go for a distributed energy company when it's all going to be power plants out in the desert? There's no chance of that, uh, in my opinion. It's, it's going to be a DG solution. Well, as that uh, truth bears fruit in the marketplace, we will certainly be talking about it here on Suncast. The future of renewables is rooftop and it is a local resource. Martin DeBono is president of GAF Energy. And today we've had a chance to really understand how one of the leaders in the market thinks about the development of the market and go-to-market strategy. Martin, thank you for your time here on Suncast. Thank you. Take care. All right, all right, Solar Warrior. That's a wrap on today's conversation. And I'm sure you're as saturated as I am with all the value bombs that Martin was dropping. If you're eager to keep learning, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every discussion along with the social media links, book recommendations, and so much more over at the blog, mysuncast.com. While you're there, won't you take two precious more minutes out of your life? Give us your feedback in our first ever listener survey. We're learning so much about how we can make this better for you. So I pray that you will take that survey still over at the same website, mysuncast.com. 
And I hope you'll tune in next week as well as I have Teague Egan, CEO of EnergyX on the show to discuss how they are disrupting the storage industry by dramatically improving the lithium extraction process. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.